visualization today is about rainbow light, the light of our own aura and the light of all those around us. Swamiji says, first imagine various people that you know or the people in this room. Picture them in your mind's eye. But instead of seeing the bodies as solid physical forms, see each person radiating an aura of light. All the different colors of the rainbow. Individuals putting out several colors at the same time. Maybe just specializing in one color. Feel how the atmosphere, wherever people are gathered, is really a celebration of rainbow light. Souls that are sad emanate less light. Those whose consciousness is clouded with selfishness, unkindness, fear, the colors of their aura are duller, more muddy. The clarity of their consciousness is reflected in the colors of their aura. As we move among people, these different fields of light wash over us. Those whose consciousness is uplifting emanate bright, dynamic light. Swamiji, when he was here, his aura is a bright indigo blue, same color he was wearing. Feel the power of that indigo blue aura as it reaches out, even from a great distance. But not all colors are equally beneficial for us to receive. So we must also at all times carry around ourselves a protective aura of our own inner light. So feel for a moment the energy field which is you being in the spine, feeling the breath, or more subtly, the energy flowing up and down the spine. Feel how that energy vibrating through the chakras, going up, circulating through the chakras, creates a magnetic field that manifests as light. Visualize the power of your own aura, completely surrounding you, in an outward moving field of clear, bright light. Visualize whatever color you prefer or no color at all. As long as it's clear and bright and see how the life force itself, life force flowing in through the medulla, circulating through the chakras, this eternally self-generating flow of light 
Feel how that light emanating from the center of yourself effortlessly goes through flesh and bone. Creates a moving ball of light which is our own self. And feel how the light of others touches the edge of that aura and where the lights match the auras may merge and where others are perhaps dark or duller the bright light of our aura can help illuminate theirs but even when in contact physically or in spirit with others whose auras are darkening. Let the power of our own light be such that no ray of that darkness can penetrate. Feel that this force field is the magnetic power that draws to us all that we set our minds to achieve. Please recite this affirmation with me. In Thee alone, I am truly free. Freedom is forever mine. In Thy light, in Thee alone, I am truly free. Freedom is forever mine. In Thy light, In thee alone, I am truly free. Freedom is forever mine. In thy light, oh, peace. Amen. Um, I decided that I would stay on chapter 5, lesson 5. Just seemed to be more that needs to be said. Um, Any questions or thoughts or comments about anything? I think all of you saw Swami's blue outfit, which I thought this class would particularly enjoy seeing since I had talked to you all about it so much. (laughs) It proved to be a huge success. So um, we have, I was telling some of you, we have a friend uh, who's here from Assisi, Maya Devi and Helmut, a couple. And there's a woman in the Assisi community whose profession it is, is to take fashion designs and turn them into patterns. So she's going to take what we've created so far and perfect it. There's a lot of things that need to be perfected and then make pattern from it. So the project is done. It was a great success. Yes, bravo, bravo. I felt just the same. <laughs> And it became, as you all well know, a great object lesson in manifestation, and he actually wore it. So, great fun. He was very pleased. Yes, Brenda. Shuj was the lowest caste. I said, you know what my, my response to that is? Go figure. <laughs> I have no idea. And when we first heard that, we just thought, oh, piffle. I mean, my response was extremely rude, which is how can 
one caste, especially what's considered to be a low caste, owned the color of the spiritual eye. It just seemed wacko, but they were absolutely emphatic in India that there just was no chance in the world that he could take that color and elevate it to, the, to a, a color of renunciation. It just, nobody would accept it. The truth of it was it was divinely inspired because it was much too dark a color. Yeah. Well, the, the, the indigo was really beautiful, but it was a very dark color. And it, it just, because I, I worked with it a lot, and the more I worked with it, the more I really didn't like it. But this color, blue, the more I had my hands on it and was looking at it and working with it, the more I just loved it. It's a happy color, this color. This color was an accident. He actually chose a different color, a much softer, more subtle color, and we took it to this dye company in San Jose, which has always just been spot on with its colors. And the man was having a really bad day, and he just he missed a color, just totally. This color that he gave us back is not at all the color we gave him. And, but there was no time to do anything about it. But this color is much better than the one we chose. Isn't that funny? The one we chose was too subtle. This one is really a happy color. And, uh, and as far as we can tell, you know, colors have names. We're not entirely certain yet, but we think the, color, the name of this color is blue. <laughs> we think this is the source of all color, you know. Persian blue, maritime blue, cerulean blue, all of these colors. We think this is the base color. Because it it's really has not, has, doesn't have purple, it doesn't have green, it's just blue. So we'll see. If we're going to call that, actually, we're going to name it Naya Swami Blue. Naya means new. It's, it's what he's creating as a new renunciate order. So it'll be, it will have its own name. There's a color on the color chart called Yale Blue, which presumably was named after the university. So I figure if they can do it, we can do it. <laughs> so, I just wanted to give you the end of that story, and that is the end of that story. Okay. So, um, there was a few elements in this chapter that I really thought did not get sufficient attention, and I wanted to give them to us. Um, the primary one is there, there are two factors here. Uh, well, let me just start where I need to start. I really wanted to spend a little time on the phrase that Swami repeats over and over in this course, which is where there is dharma, there is victory. Yata dharma, tata jaya. And that is one of the um, mottos of Ananda. Ananda has a few phrases which have always governed us. And Swamiji saw these words, where there is righteousness, where there is dharma, there is victory. It was the motto of one of the royal families of one of the um, provinces of India when they were still Maharajas. And that when he saw it in India in the early 50s, it just struck Swamiji as such a perfect articulation of the whole essence of the spiritual path that when he started Ananda, he put it right in the forefront. We say people are more important than things, meaning that the, the, the community is composed of its citizens, not of the things it does. And the welfare of the citizens must always be the first consideration. Um, but the other part of it is, where there is dharma, there is always victory. And it is such a, a, a deeply felt reality that the more profoundly you can drink that phrase in and integrate it into your life, because it becomes the foundation stone of another principle which is illustrated in this lesson, 
which is the principle of faith. Swamiji tells a number of stories about how he, he was faced with great obstacles, but he went forward, you know, knowing that there would be a divine response, and that divine response was, was a certainty. And the goodness of that response was also a certainty. And that's what enables him to be able to follow all the other rules that he's given us so far, which is to be able to generate energy with calm focus, to be able to see where he's going and to know that the whatever he needs is going to be there. And just this, this whole concept of faith is one of the obviously fundamentals on the spiritual path. And now we're trying to apply it to this question of God taking care of us, not only in terms of our spiritual welfare, but also in terms of our material needs. And it, it, as I was saying, it just seemed to me that we need to spend a little more time on this. And Swami makes reference in this lesson also to the chapter in Autobiography of a Yogi, The Two Penniless Boys in Brindaban, which is this demonstration of Master going off just as a boy and, and having all his needs met by God, even though his older brother you know, totally disallowed that this was a possibility. So these are the elements of what I'd like to talk about tonight. First, I want to start with where there is dharma, there is victory. And just give you a little bit of an idea of how this works. At one point, we were doing some classes on self-acceptance and self-esteem and so on like that. And we still do, you know, the, uh, the project of coming to peace with your own nature is one of the Excuse me for a second, but the red lights are flashing right outside. But I don't think they're actually... I think they've gone by. They were beautiful. You missed them. They were just absolutely gorgeous. It was totally distracting me. It put Jason's sweatshirt to shame. They were just so pretty. (laughs) I thought they were stopping right out in front. Um, But, uh, oh yes. Um, in, In one context or another, Swamiji made a very interesting statement because nowadays there's such a tremendous effort to accept yourself. Sometimes... Swamiji will tell a story about a woman who was very overweight and also smoked like a chimney. And she took this course in order to, you know, to master these things. And at the end of the course, she was still very overweight and smoking like a chimney. But she said now she accepted herself that way. And, you know, Swami was raising the question whether this is actually progress or not. Now, of course, one can argue that the first possibility of uh, you know, moving forward is we have to not exactly be at war with ourselves. We have to get going in the right direction. But it was in that context he made a very simple statement. He said the only way to truly accept yourself is to have a clear conscience. Which is, you know, the kind of bold common sense statement that Swami is inclined to make in an age of political correctness when we're trying always to say that everything is okay no matter what it is. It's just relative. It's just your attitude. He said, No. The only way to really accept yourself is if you have nothing to be ashamed of, if you have a clear conscience about who you are. Now, none of us have a completely clear conscience if we move, especially into the past. Param uh, Sri Teshwar, in Autobiography of a Yogi, says a phrase we all love to quote, the past lives of all men are dark with many shames. We like to quote that because it, it just sort of helps us to feel that whatever horrendous memories we have of horrendously bad ideas that seem like good ideas at the time, we can feel that we're in good company. And what Sri Yukteswar was also saying with that statement was, it just really doesn't make any difference what you've been. 
What you've been is just entirely irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what you are now. What you are in this moment, what you aspire to become, that's the only reality that matters. The rest of it is just water under the bridge, really, literally. In the sense that we're only an energy flow. And once the energy has flowed through us, there's nothing left anymore, just the, the pattern of that energy. But there's no fixed reality. It's the ego's involvement with it that gives it a continuing reality. Now, quite apart from whether any of us can actually have a clear conscience or not, this principle of where there is dharma, there is victory, is to my mind one of the most comforting um, aphorisms on our spiritual path. Because what that says is, if in this moment I am um, living according to the highest principles I understand, the highest principles I'm capable of achieving, as long as I keep putting forward righteous energy, then everything else will follow. And I've often said to people, sometimes what I say is you have to do your dharma in a vacuum, (laughs) meaning that there's no logical way in which your actions are going to connect to the results that you're trying to achieve. Or the odds against you are just overwhelming. And there's no way that you can rationalize out how this is all going to resolve. But you just say quietly to yourself, where there's dharma, there's victory. If I am moving according to righteousness, then that will bring eventually the result that I want. And of course, the other side of that is, How can I ever expect to emerge victorious if anywhere along the way in this project I'm violating the principles of Dharma? Dharma is a word that bears just a moment to um, explain, too, because it's not necessarily self-evident. Swami's given many explanations for it. The most common one people use is duty, but duty, it doesn't begin to describe it. Dharma is... is, uh, Dharmic actions are those actions which expand consciousness. And the important point of that about that is that therefore dharma is different for different people. Um, I know I was uh, a guest once at the home of a unity minister, and this was a number of years ago, and he was um, very active in not merely a, a, an anti-war movement, whatever war we were fighting at the time, but a sort of uh, let's dissolve all military options kind of movement and I was having to not wholly endorse what he was doing because I was saying to him you know if you have an individual person who's only ever lived for themselves maybe a man who's only ever lived for himself and all his concern is just about his own pleasure and his own um, fulfillment and and it he suddenly is rises rises to the level of having national patriotism and is actually even willing, you know, to go out and work hard and become a soldier and even stand up for a cause he believes in and maybe even give up his life, for that person, that may be forward movement. You, know, you, can't, you can't say to every soldier, speaking of this man, speaking of myself, I don't think for me to become a, a nationalistic patriot and, and pick up a rifle to kill people from other countries would be for me a step forward in Dharma. That for me would be a step backwards because, well, because I've been there and I've done that. 
But you can see for others, it's a, it's a moving up. You know, sometimes for an individual person to take responsibility for his family, you know, to work hard, to earn enough money to send his children for, to college, could be for that person, you know, a great um, overcoming of self-interest and an overcoming of tamasic energy. For someone else to um, renounce that family and go off and live in an ashram, maybe for that person the step forward. So, so righteousness and dharma and that always has to be understood in a very individual way. Now, of course, there's obvious, self-evidently, um, you know, universal principles of dharma. We can't just sit and make this up whole cloth. But, but for each of us individually, we have to stand in a certain moment and ask, you know, what is my dharma in this situation? A friend of mine is involved in a lawsuit, is being unfairly sued. And when Swami heard about what was happening to that person, he said, well, I hope that they countersue. I mean, they, they, you know, she should throw the book at that man. She should, she should countersue with everything she has. You know, it seems like sort of a strange thing to do, but, but in her case, and he felt very strongly, the dharma of the situation was for her to stand up for what was right and not merely just sort of say, oh, well, I don't really want to fight. We'll just let it go. Now, for another person, it might be just, you know, just surrender. It just depends on who we are, which way is forward for us. These were points that we talked about in earlier lessons when we were talking about specific karma. But once we establish, you know, within, especially within broad outlines of selflessness and honesty and ethical behavior and so on, what that dharma is, we have to have great confidence that as long as I move forward along the path of dharma, then I am setting in motion those forces which will result in victory. And woe to me if I ever step off of that path. So, you know, engrave it on your heart, engrave it on the walls of your office, put it in your car, put it on your refrigerator. Where there is dharma, there is victory. And when, when we see it again and again, and of course you always have to have a long enough rhythm, because sometimes in the short term, um, the forces of anti-dharma, of adharma, do gain a foothold, but they never last. You know, isn't it just something, even just in our little bit of time, to just watch how the mighty are brought low, just time and time again. You know, all of these forces of greed and self-aggrandizement, these people just start moving and we start thinking that everything is just going to go up and up and it doesn't really matter, and then slowly it just all comes down again. It's just really... Um, Sobering, I think is the right word. And Swamiji talks about it here. You know, before you start on any path of action that you know is going to have karmic consequences that you don't want, realize that when the future happens, it's now. I love the way he put that. You know, when it finally catches up with you, you're still going to be there. And it's going to be the present moment when it happens. And quite self-evidently, whatever dissonance we're experiencing now, is because of whatever dissonant vibrations we set, go- we set going in the past. You know, sometimes it's quite frightening, actually. I was driving my car down the road the other day, and I just had this, I could only call it a moment of near panic, when I realized that I would always be conscious and always be myself. You know, just the, the sheer inescapability of it absolutely overwhelmed me. And that's why people go mad. Really, they just go mad. It's like, I just don't want to have to relate to reality, I'm just going to go off into some world of my own. And you can see it. You know, one 
I just, I mastered my energy. And I mean, I literally just centered in on the breath and decided it's not so bad now, so it probably won't be so bad forever. And, you know, it's expanding and so on like that. But the fact of the matter is, whatever happens, whatever we set in motion will catch up with us. And and after a while, after we really just dig that trough of understanding really deep into ourselves. You're just not even tempted. That's how Swamiji writes about it. He writes about, he tells the story of the time when that young man came to him and asked whether he should join Ananda or go to India. He had his inheritance and he wanted to put it into Ananda if he joined Ananda. Swami said it was $200,000, which at that time was just both pre-inflation and also at that stage of Ananda was a huge amount of money. But Swamiji said, if he'd really wanted to join Ananda, he wouldn't have asked me. It was just so simple, you know. Obviously, the man was not certain of what he was doing. And and Swami said, no, your place is India. And he really felt that it was true, that the man didn't have what it was needed at that point. But Swami just said, you know, he wasn't even tempted. It didn't even cross his mind. And he tells another story. It's, um, I, I think it might be in these lessons. It's also in my book. When he was visiting in Texas, one of the richest women in the United States was there. Very paranoid person because she was born into the wealth and everyone in her family had always told her that everybody just wants your money. So she was very nervous. Swami, of course, didn't care about her money, but he also, she was very accustomed to having everybody just kind of uh, scurry around and do her bidding. You know, no one ever crossed her because she had so much money. So Swamiji deliberately opened a rather controversial conversation with her. She was very much of an advocate of women's rights, and Swami is very much of an advocate of gender equality. He doesn't necessarily think that women should have rights over men or men over women, for that matter. And so he spoke frankly and strongly against what he knew to be some of her pet prejudices because they were nothing but that. Well, she was so offended she never spoke to him again. But it was like he wasn't even tempted. You know, it would have been so easy to cultivate her patronage and she could have built our whole work and not even noticed. But sooner or later, once you move off the path of righteousness, it will catch up with you. Now, the other side of that is this quality, you know, that we refer to as faith. And in the... uh, Uh, the way Swami writes it here, although God is infinite, he or she is aware of every tiny ripple of thought and feeling in our consciousness. And earlier, last week, I remember I quoted to say that it isn't just metaphysical, impersonal realities. There's an actual conscious, loving force that's listening to us. Um, Swamiji in in the the reading for this last Sunday I never got so far as to be able to say it but um, the reading was Seek ye first the kingdom of God and in the expanded commentary on that scripture reading Swamiji talked about this quality called Bhav B-H-A-V which is a a completely you have to use the Sanskrit word because English people don't ever talk about this and Bhav has and, and uh, is the way in which we relate to God. How, how do we see God? And this is the father, mother, friend. 
in our disciples group. We had a long discussion about that in our first class. You know, what, what is our chosen deity that you called an Ishtadeva, the, the chosen form of God? Do we like to think of God as a mother or a father or a friend or as a guru? And that's a whole discussion in itself. But Swami added another part to it. Bhav also means the attitude that we ourselves assume in relation to that image of God. And what that means is, if we think about God as a divine mother, then it behooves us to be mother's little child. You see? If we think of God as the master, then it behooves us to be the the serviceful, obedient servant of that master. If we think of God as the father, and with that demanding quality and that impersonal quality of wisdom, then it behooves us to be that kind of, um, to respond to that kind of impersonal wisdom with that kind of integrity and impersonal force of our own. But how, how casual we are and how sort of seemingly inconsistent we are, or inattentive, I think is the word I mean, to cultivating that inner bhav. And it's interesting because Master always referred to the monks as the boys. You know, no matter how old they were, how, 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 how much they were on the path, they were the boys. And is it between Rajasi and Master where Master would sometimes say to Rajasi, don't forget where your power comes from. And Rajasi would say, I know, sir, it comes from you. Just like a little child. Because that was the bhav that Rajasi was cultivating in relationship to his guru. Now, now, you see how powerful an idea that is? There's stories about Anandamoy Ma, who was the woman saint of India, described as the joy-permeated mother in this book. And she was uh, profoundly saintly in her consciousness from early childhood. When she was a little tiny child, her mother used to find her spontaneously assume, assuming yoga postures and mudras because the energy, those postures which we deliberately do, or mudras which we deliberately assume, you know, different ways of uh, placing our hands or our bodies. When we do ananda yoga, every time we assume a yoga posture, we do an affirmation that reinforces in the mind the quality of consciousness that that particular physical posture um, encourages. It encourages the energy to flow in a courageous or a surrendered or an open-hearted manner, all the different affirmations that we have. Well, Anandamoy Ma as a child with no knowledge of any of this would, would go into those states of consciousness and then her body would assume the position because that was the natural expression of what was going on inside of her without any awareness of any of this. Now, um, Anandamoy Ma soon became called Ma. All of her disciples called her mother. She was the quintessential divine mother. She was extremely feminine in the way she carried on her saintliness. She had no organization. She had no buildings. Many ashrams and things sprang up around her. But she personally actually did almost nothing except just radiate and bless and love And she also advised and spoke, but she didn't do any masculine kind of work. She was just a mother. She was a fountainhead to which everyone came. But her own inner bhav, 
was like a child. And she was just completely innocent in her approach to life. And one of the stories among many that's told about her was when she was walking through a, a, an uninhabited area, and I'm not quite sure why she was alone or where she was, but there were dacoits there, there were bandits, and they were, they were dangerous bandits in that part. And she became lost. Now, is this a story about Anandamoy Mara? Is this a story about Sarada Devi? This might be a story about Ramakrishna's wife, actually. This isn't about Anandamoy Ma, Ramakrishna's wife, who was also a great saint. But she was also a very, the same kind of woman. The Holy Mother, she was called. But she was walking in the jungle, and there were these uh, dangerous people. And, but she was lost, and she just ran up to this bandit. And instead of having any sense of fear, she said, Father, your little child is lost and doesn't know how to get home. That was just her complete, that was her bhav. Father, your child is lost and doesn't know how to get home. And so he took her in and took care of her and, you know, helped her find her way back to the village. And, and only later did people say, well, he was a dangerous bandit, you know. He's murdered many people. But her bhav toward everything was as a little child. I have a friend, this is not, this girl was not a saint, but this is an interesting thing. She actually had, in this particular case, she had a, a, a mental breakdown. But her, the way her breakdown went, she went in a very spiritual direction. Because it was, it was a sort of um, metaphysically induced. And the whole time that she was in this altered state, she was very conscious of uh, the energy from the spiritual eye. She was very knowledgeable spiritually. And she, she had this experience of universal love. She behaved in ways that were not normal because she thought that the whole world was dissolving. She thought it was the end of the world and everything was dissolving into love, so it was just time to leave everything behind. And in the midst of this, you know, she was in some downtown uh, place. It might have been somewhere in Oakland, somewhere she was. And she was just looking around this bus station and she had this impulse that she would find the darkest force that she could find and she would go and uplift it. So she found some really tough guy and like a little child just went up and he took her home. But, you know, what she would normally be frightened of, she was not at all frightened. She was just this little child and she now reconstructs remembering that they talked about various things and the man called his mother, whom he hadn't spoken to in years. <laughs> and then you know, took care of her overnight, and then the next day took her probably to a hospital or something like that. But it was just because... And, and normally, my friend was actually a very timid girl. I mean, the whole action was so out of character for her, but she had actually just moved temporarily. You know, her mental breakdown was half, of, half spiritual and half um, unbalanced. But for her, too, it was just remarkable to just move through the world with such an attitude and watch the world respond to her. She was, of course, very lucky. But still, isn't it interesting? I mean, Sarada Devi, I, I'm confu- forgive me for confusing Anandamoy Ma and Sarada Devi. I can't speak definitely about Ma, although I think there are stories about her like that, too. I just can't think of why Ma would have been wandering in the woods, and I know that Sarada Devi would have. But the whole point of that is when, if we want um, God to take care of us, we have to have the courage to form a relationship in which, to at least to a large extent, we're depending on God to take care of us. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have to magnetize that to us. Now, Swamiji is such an interesting example of this 
Because on one hand, he's so powerful and so capable of doing whatever he does. But we don't, we, we, we can only imagine what his inner bhav is. Because the way he expresses it to us all the time is, well, I don't really ever worry about anything I do because I can't do anything. How many times has he said that? It's not a problem for me because I know that I can't do anything. So I don't have any lack of confidence because I know that I can do nothing. God, through me, however, can do a great deal. Or he'll speak just at all times, you know, of master's power. It's not my own power. Whatever happens, it's not from me. It's really master who's doing it. And we hear those words and, and there's a, uh, an inclination not to disbelieve him, but not to entirely hear what he's saying either. But because people will often say things like that just kind of as a way to make themselves seem humble or, not, or make themselves not want to seem proud or this is what ought to be said. But to actually um, imagine the bhav that's so deep that when you make those statements they're just a fact and that this is how one regards oneself. It's a a marvelous practice. Haridas, who met some of you, know he lived here for a few years. He's a great soul with a very humble nature. And he has such a charming way of relating when people would say something like, you know, oh, that Sunday service you gave was just so wonderful. He, he, would, he said, yes, something inspiring happened and I got to be there. <laughs> you know, just like he acknowledges that, there, that he was part of the experience, but just considers himself to have been lucky to have been at the same spot where it happened. Swamiji um, sometimes has remarked that often when he's speaking, he's so much in a flow that isn't a, a mental flow that he'll hear an idea come out of his mouth and he said he'll sometimes think, my, that was really insightful. I wish I'd thought of that. (laughs) Because his inner relationship to it is so impersonal. It's just, he's just there to serve Master. When he was talking in, uh, I don't remember exactly where we were, I don't think it was a particularly large group of people, but he was talking about the fact of that he was, uh, wasn't going to leave his body now, but was going to stay in his body for some years to come, you know, up to a decade, maybe a little longer, just a complete change from everything he'd been saying before May, before this May, when sort of his astrologically appointed hour to leave his body. And once he went through that, essentially his life now belongs to Master, and Master seems to want to keep him for a while longer. And... There was this certain energy of, oh, we're so glad you're going to stay. We weren't ready to have you leave, sir. It'll be so nice to have you with us longer. Very sternly, he said, I'm not doing it for any of you. Just, <laughs> He said, my life belongs to God. If Master wants me, that's fine. I'm here to serve him. But just real forcefully, I'm not really here for you. And then he said, of course, I'm happy if you're benefited. But his inner bob, you see, that's what he's revealing. He's, he's telling us where his consciousness is. And so much of our consciousness is related to all the details. He's saying his reality is between himself and Master, and that's all. Everything else may come, and he doesn't object to it, but he holds himself in this certain relationship. Um, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, when she would serve the poor, um, when sometimes 
She was quizzed by people who had a more worldly consciousness. How much good do you think you're doing, Mother? Do you think that another kind of social service might actually affect more people? You know, do you think the poor people are really being aided by the work you do? And there was a film of her just sort of looking up like this. I'm not in the business of helping the poor people. Which, you know, you would think, well, all she does is help the poor people. She says, I serve Jesus. Just, that's all that I do. I serve Jesus. And Jesus had asked her to do that work, so she did it. But her commitment was not to the work. Her commitment was what Jesus had asked her to do. Now, in terms of activating um, the, the laws of faith, which is what this chapter is about, what is it to be practical? And what Swamiji is trying to get us to understand, to rely first on God and therefore to behave according to divine principles Because we recognize that if we rely first on God, then everything else will follow. If we, see the way that works, meaning is, if we rely on human cleverness, if we rely on our own ability to make things happen, and then sometimes we follow the divine principles, and then sometimes if it seems like it's not too important, we don't. Then we're not really fully relying on that simple principle where there is dharma, there is victory. And the corollary, if I break dharma, then it's not going to come through for me. Now, building that kind of faith, and here's another aspect of it which I thought was extremely important. That's the way Swami put it. When you do the right thing, he's saying, when you act consistently using your willpower to behave in the correct manner. Now understand, behaving in the correct manner is a very all-pervasive idea because it's not just not stealing from your brothers and sisters or not being dishonest in your business. It's not just a question of whether or not you pad your bills. It's whether or not you, you behave according to the laws of righteousness. That means kindness. That means compassion. That means generosity. That means non-judgment. That means seeing others as, a, as children of God. You know, just all the little meannesses of the heart and petty-minded small ways in which we violate um, divine law. Which, If we're serviceful, if we, if we give generously to divine causes. You know, in the early years, I consider myself very fortunate because of the early training that we were allowed to have. And it's not in form. It can't always so easily be replicated now. But the spirit of what we experienced is worth trying to understand and embrace. I'm saying we, meaning the first 10 years of Ananda, which was, you know, 69 to 79, that that first decade of which I was part of most of it. We were extremely poor. We were largely single. Many uh, had assumed a monastic lifestyle. Um, our, Our... living situation, as I was speaking of on Sunday, was exceedingly primitive. The work we were asked to do was um, just hard work for the most part. Fortunately, the core that started the community was young, and so in our 20s we didn't mind. We, had, we were just to st- still strong. All the things that ail a body hadn't really hit us yet. And it was a period of just, um, well, the phrase that we coined was what we called kamikaze karma yoga, which is just suicidally intense um, service, just throwing yourself into these serviceful projects that just 
endlessly went on and on and on. We worked for salaries, but we earned so little money. It was really just work, 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 work. So there was this constant necessity to discipline one's own inclinations, inclination to want to take it easy, inclinations to want to be annoyed with incompetence and difficulty going on around us, inclination to worry about money, an inclination to to be concerned about whether all these other desires that were roiling up in you, whether or not you would ever get all these other things, but I want to travel, but I want to have a nice home, but I need some security, but I need to get my teeth fixed. You know, just whatever it was, I want a husband, when will I ever be able to have babies? You know, I hate this old car. You know, whatever it might be, just roiling around in us. I remember um, at a certain point in my life, I was living in a very small trailer and a pretty ugly trailer. Um, well, an extremely ugly trailer. And uh, most of the time, I just didn't pay any attention to it. It was just like there it was, and that was that. One day I woke up, and I had this very strong feeling in my heart, it isn't good for me to live like this. I mean, it wasn't even that I liked it or didn't like it. It just, this isn't good for me. This is just too contractive. This isn't good. And then I thought... (laughs) well, you know, I'm perfectly capable of earning as much money as I wanted to earn if I put my mind to it. But in order to to solve this, I would have to pull my energy out of what I know my dharma is right now, which is to just keep doing what I'm doing. And I remember saying to Divine Mother, well, if this intuition is true and this really isn't good for me, then you're going to have to do something about it. And I, I really never thought about it. It just went out of my mind. And I went back to my normal indifference. A year later, I had married David and had moved out of that trailer and was living in this little house up at Ananda Village, up at the meditation retreat. And it was this dome that was beautifully painted white on the inside and it had this lovely blue rug like the color here and had very nice furniture. And I woke up in the morning and there was a little crystal and it was flashing rainbows on the wall with the sunshine and it was just like all of a sudden I remembered that intuition that I'd had that I needed a different environment at no point had I lifted a finger to make it different but I had just held to what I knew I was supposed to do and because it was righteous Divine Mother found a way to offer it to me now this sort of thing doesn't happen you know, every day, but it happens a great deal. And we have to be very attentive uh, to the the relationship, the cause and effect relationship between our right action. And what I was starting to say with this is, the other factor is, you see, we have a lot of what Swami calls in here kinks in our nature. You know, where through past wrong energies, instead of the... um, divine energy flowing smoothly up and down through the chakras and just whirling around and being effortlessly focused on divine things, we have all these vrittis. These are the kinks. So the energy, the, the, the pure river of, of life force within us gets drawn off into these vrittis. You know, we all have them. They just spin. I wish I were more attractive. I wish I were this. I wish I had that. I'm afraid of this. Oh, I long for that. Oh, I'm so ashamed of this. You know. So instead of the energy just flowing in self-forgetful ease 
or in contemplation of the divine, our inner bhav is spoiled by all these vrittis. Now, what we called kamikaze karma yoga, I always felt it was like this. It's like we put out all this energy, selfless energy, selfless in the sense that we're working for the, for the pure sake of whatever cause we're serving. In, you know, in my youth, it was the building of Ananda, but really whatever profession or situation we find ourselves in, you know, many of you are engaged in righteous work. It isn't necessarily, you know, specifically about an ashram, but it's righteous labor that you're doing. And there's people around you that you're serving, even just serving um, through the work that you do. I know a friend of mine was a physicist at Stanford. He told me he could sit down in the morning with a problem and then he would look up and it would be the end of the day. And he wasn't, he was sort of worried. I said, my dear, you should thank God every day. (laughs) You know, just that you're able to devote yourself so wholeheartedly, you know, to the advancement of science or whatever it is that you're doing. But if we work righteously with concentration, with calmness, with detachment, with selfless interest, on on righteous causes, whatever those causes might be. We're we're creating a positive stream of energy. And gradually, that positive stream of energy will draw into its clear flow all of these kinks. This is what we talk about when we talk about the chakras. You've, almost all of you, sat in classes in which I've drawn the picture of the river flowing and one of the ways that you get rid of the, the, the whirlpools, the vrittis, is by increasing the flow of the river, and then the magnetic force of the river is flowing stronger than the magnetism of the vritti, the whirlpool, and the whirlpool is simply absorbed into the river. And there's no point at which you have to consciously dissolve it. It just simply is dissolved. Of course, the practice of kriya is the supreme form of making that river strong, and that's why kriya is so, um, so hastens our spiritual evolution. Because what we're doing with Kriya is we are directly increasing the magnetism of that central flow and then all of the karmic whirlpools um, that are less, have less power than the flow of the Kriya going up and down the spine, then those karmas are gradually dissolved. And thus, by one round of Kriya, we can accomplish what it would take a year of right living to accomplish. But karma yoga, which in this sense means nishkam karma, working selflessly for a righteous cause without thought of what I'm going to get out of it, gradually also, as Swami puts it, smooths out the kinks. Now, how long it takes to smooth out those kinks simply depends on how much buried karma there is. And that is why he explains that sometimes, even though you're doing everything right, it takes a while before the whole system begins to manifest itself. Now, what we need to cultivate in the midst of that is we need to be very attentive to our inner bhav. And in this chapter, Autobiography of a Yogi, um, it's the most amazing part in the chapter, The Penniless Boys in Brindavan, Mukunda, which is Yogananda as a young boy, is there with his boyhood friend, Jitendra. 
And his older brother, Ananda, has challenged them to go to the city of Brindaban. He gives them a one-way railway ticket. They go early in the morning. They need to go there. They need to tell no one about their plight, which is that they are penniless. And they are, they are under uh, obligation to see the sights of Brindaban, get back to Agra, on, and not to get stranded in Brindaban, and not to miss a single meal without begging and without telling anyone what they're trying to accomplish. So the story is really quite remarkable. And uh, Yogananda doesn't hesitate for a moment to take on this challenge. His older brother is trying to say to him, you're always talking about your, you don't need father's money. You can live independent of the family. Well, prove it. And in, in the story, it's very, very inspiring. Yogananda, not for one second does he hesitate. And he enumerates all the different times in his life, starting with when he was a little child and the light from the picture of Lahiri Mahashaya came out from the picture and cured him of cholera, to standing on the balcony and wanting one of the balloons, one of the kites that the neighbor boy had to, to come over to him. And, you know, he just gets caught on a cactus and is delivered to him. And meeting his master, I mean, he, he lists quite a number of things. So without a moment's hesitation, he says to Ananta, of course. Now, you see, it's, it first, uh, that alone is just so beautiful because we can all talk about this. But here his, his brother's putting this terrible challenge on him. He says, Absolutely. And so then Jatendra, his boyhood friend, gets dragged along with him. And of course they start right out there on the train and they get swept up and taken to this ashram and they're given this 30-course meal that was prepared for the ashram patrons who couldn't come and instead these two young boys are treated not only to lunch but to this exquisite feast. But then they leave the ashram and now they're out in the hot sun. They have no money, they have no way of getting around. And all of a sudden, Jitendra already waffles. Oh, well, that was just lucky that happened. You know, but now how do we know? Now, it, it was such a, um, a perfectly expressed reality, isn't it? Because no matter how many times God rescues us, doesn't it so often come up the next time? Well, I'm not sure he'll do it this time. Those were flukes. We were just lucky. You know? But this is where we have to cultivate the inner bhav. We have to cultivate, you know, and, and the, the, the rule of thumb for being a devotee is something that Swamiji said to me, I wrote into my book. You have to practice when it's easier. We have to practice at all times being attentive to all the ways in which God is always looking out for us. Every, God knows every tiny that's the word Swami uses, tiny ripple of thought that goes through our consciousness. And that is something to just sit and meditate on. And we're so anxious. Maybe this won't be known. Maybe that won't be known. Maybe this will be missed. Maybe that will be missed. But that's, to a large extent, why we find ourselves out of tune is because we're always putting ourselves out of tune. There's another factor here, which is a peculiar thing. I was thinking about this in the context of Swami Kriyananda. Because sometimes people will come to see Swami and he's just remarkably unimpressive. (laughs) You know, just like he makes no impression on their consciousness. And this is especially true, I've observed, 
Let me think how to phrase this. So many people work hard to persuade others of their point of view. You know, they, and I don't just mean like a class like this where we're trying to, but just in interaction. You know, we work, we work hard to persuade each other. Well, don't you see that this is really how it could work? And, but Swamiji, on the spiritual path, will be intensely helpful if you're, if you're receptive to what he has to offer. But if you're sort of challenging with your arms folded, and maybe I believe what you say and maybe I don't, explain it to me. Swamiji will like put out no energy to persuade, like less than no energy. It's like he becomes almost a non-person. There's just like, it's sort of like, why should he? Why should he invade our reluctance? If, if someone only accepts the point of view because you hammer them down, they don't really, sometimes you think you've won an argument whereas a person has simply agreed with you to get you to stop. You know, haven't you ever been in that situation? Somebody will go away thinking that you were persuaded and all you were was just escaping from the situation. You know, well, in, in a, a sense, what I, I'm saying here is, if we're so busy taking care of ourselves, then Divine Mother's not going to bother. Because if we have it all together, why should she sort of rescue us when, we, when we've managed everything ourselves? Now, it's very delicate because it's not just a question of external actions, it's a question of inner bhav. And that's where Swamiji, who's so dynamic in everything that he does, nonetheless, his, his inner relationship to God is that, well, really of a little child. I mean, that's the demeanor that he has. It's just like, he, he's just here. And God is doing all these things, and isn't it remarkable? And so in our own lives, we, we have to behave, as I was saying earlier, you know, there has to be that righteousness. There has to be that right consciousness about what we do. Because where there is dharma, there is victory. But there also, it always has to be acted upon with, the reason this is going to work is not because I'm so smart, but because Divine Mother and I are doing this together. And when I cooperate and act as her instrument in this world... And of course she'll take care of me. Why would she not? All right. I'm a little late taking a break, but let's take a, a little break now. So, does anyone have any questions or uh, comments about anything we've talked about so far? Yes. Well, okay, Brenda and Sahadev both. When you talk about developing a bhav in uh-huh. relating to God, would you expect that the... That the relationship or Bob that you would have with God would be the same as the relationship you would have with Yogananda and with the other gurus in our path. And um, I, you know, I think that, um, in fact, I know that I have a relationship. I know that I have a, a particular Bob, but I've never analyzed it. I've never thought about what it is to identify it. Right. You know, is that what I should do? And you, know, you, need, you said that we should develop it. So should I sort of identify what it is before I develop it? Or, well, you know? when I say develop it, it's not about analyzing. It's, it's practice that, Bob. If, if you do feel that God is your divine mother, then behave accordingly. You know that story in uh, The Path where 
the, one of the disciples said to Master, when I, when I look at you, I see the Divine Mother. Master's response says, well, then behave accordingly. Meaning, if we really do inside ourselves assert that we have a guru and that guru is guiding us, then behave accordingly. If we really feel that God is a loving mother and we really do have faith in God, then behave accordingly. And that's cultivating the inner bhav so that we, we don't just sort of drop into it when it's convenient and then space out and behave in a completely other way. You know, Sarada Davies running up to the, the bandit in the forest. Father, Father, your child is lost. Help me. Um, she didn't have to, like, think, oh, this is how to get around this sort of evil guy. It was that was her natural way of relating to the world. If we're a disciple, if, if our bhav includes being a disciple, then there's always this sort of inward questioning. What would you have me do, sir? You know, I see this problem. How would you want me to handle this? And, you know, oh my, that was wonderful work that you did. Oh, thank you for this inspiration. You know, there's a constant inner relationship going on, not just sometimes. So I don't think it requires great analysis because it's almost contrary to the project at hand. It requires greater awareness is what we really have. And, and also the firmness to really, once, once we feel whatever is natural to us, you know, the firmness of purpose to hold to it and, and stay in that um, mood against all temptation. But, you know, we can be a very effective child of God. Swamiji is the ideal example of that because he's childlike in his surrender. I mean, that's what you see on his face. Lately especially, I mean, I was looking at his face and it's this, it, it, he actually looks the same as he does in some of his childhood pictures. Of course his face is aged, but it hasn't aged because that childlike openness is just completely present because that's his bhav. It's interesting, I had a, a number of pictures of Ananda um all out for, I don't remember why I had them out. Um, and she, because she was, became so well known so young and her consciousness has always been the same as she describes it, you can actually, you see these pictures of her as a teenage, a beautiful young teenage girl and then her in her 80s before she died. But if you kind of just like circle down to just this much of her face, nothing changed. You know, the, the inner energy was exactly the same, just as she said, all the way through. When you looking at the whole picture, you're seeing the signs of the body aging and you kind of sweep it all in together and, and think that she's changed. But when you really focus in just on this expression, the face is exactly the same because the inner bhav was always the same. So does that make sense? Yeah. Or toward Master. God. Well, the way Swamiji writes it somewhere, and this may be actually in the commentary I just read, he says that the, the guru and the angels help us in our relationship to God. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like together we worship. I think of it like a piano teacher. Uh, the, the piano teacher teaches you to play and you have the instrument. You have to play the instrument and what you're playing is the music. But the piano teacher teaches you how to use the instrument and together you celebrate the music. 
So it's like the guru helps us to work with the instrument, which is our own consciousness. And what we experience together is the uplifting presence of God. And the guru is doing that with us. And then just like uh, a musician who has a great teacher who recognizes that they would never have been able to bring that music out of them without that teacher, so their gratitude to the teacher is limitless. But what they're grateful for is what we're all doing together. So, yes, your relationship to your guru would be similar, in a sense, but it's a, it's a slightly different relationship than the Divine Mother that we're worshipping together. Um, it, it gets a little subtle, and I'm not really quite sure how to parse it out. But Swami describes, we, we're devoted to God and we seek the help of the gurus, the masters and the saints and the angels to help us to, to, to merge into that consciousness. Because Master himself doesn't exist. He's just a window for the infinite. There's no Yogananda to be devoted to. There's just the window on the infinite and the more we're devoted to him, the more deeply we feel the consciousness behind him. I speak so much about Swamiji, sometimes people say, well, what about Master? I say, well, I don't know. The more deeply I'm attuned to Swamiji, the more deeply I experience Master. It's, I just never crosses my mind that we're dealing with two different realities. Even Swamiji's the piano teacher, and we're celebrating the music. So it all comes together in that sense. Fair enough? Yeah. Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier the story about Swamiji and faith. Uh-huh. Um, and <clears throat> faith has always been something I've never quite... <laughs> never quite understood real clearly... What faith is? Well, not only, but how, how much of faith is, should, I, should or could our faith be based on our own experience versus something that's beyond our experience? Uh-huh. You know, that's, just... the, you know, that's where science and art come together. Because the science is that God is aware of the tiniest ripple in our consciousness. The art is, and he says it a number of times in these lessons, just the ones we've read so far, don't go too far beyond your actual experience because then it becomes presumption or mere, mere intellectuality. So, so faith, to be real, has to be an absolute certainty. And the only way it can be an absolute certainty is that, if, that we've experienced it. But if God has helped you 16 times and you, you find the 17th time, and this time um, the, the span that you have to cross is 7 feet instead of just 4 and he's, he's always lifted you over the four-foot span 16 times in a row, but now it's seven feet. And if you stand back and say, well, gee, I don't know, he moved me four feet, but can he move me seven feet? I just am not certain of this. It's, it, that's similar enough that we should say, okay, I'm not quite sure how we're going to do it, but it's always worked, and I know it's going to work this time. If we suddenly say, well, he's lifted me over a span of four feet, I think I'll go to the top of the Empire State Building and try to step to the ground. That would be presumptuous because the amount of energy required to cover that distance, because you see, the faith is not really that God just lifts you up magically and moves you. The faith is that you will be able to channel the energy to make it happen. So it's really faith in yourself. And that, that's the whole point. So it's, the faith is the faith 
that God will give me what I need in order to make this happen, not that he will effortlessly move me. And faith that's just based on, oh, God's effortlessly going to move me. I mean, man, you can think about anything you want because it's not based on anything. But when you're having the faith that God will help me, and that's where Swami describes, you know, he, th- he thinks he's going to lose the land to this, you know, nefarious man who's put a lien on the property. He trusts that God will help him, but that doesn't mean he's not going to do everything he can. He just trusts that God will inspire him and help him to do it. And so he works with complete determination, but his faith is, is that if I work with complete determination where there is Dharma, there will be victory. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the land will be saved. It just means that there will be victory. And Swami raises that point in here when he talks about the man whose son is in college in Canada. And let's not cut ethical corners just because we're justifying it by sending our son to college. Maybe your son won't be able to go to college. But maybe it'll turn out that it'll be fine if he doesn't go to college. Maybe he'll have to work his way through. He raises all these other possibilities. It's not that God will always allow us to do exactly what we want. Now, coming back to your question of faith, the faith, see, it's, it's an interesting balance. All faith is ultimately faith in ourselves, in a sense. I mean, it's faith in our experience. That was the, um, let, me, let me see how to say this. I mean, I've been very anxious for a lot of my life. I mean, my, my karmic challenge is to become nervous. And I become nervous because there's too many things to do. I become nervous, you know, I'm leaving on a trip. I don't know if things will get done. And, but I've, I've worked my way into a greater sense of calmness because of the fact that I've noticed that every single time it gets done. And I mean, I've really noticed that it gets done. That either it gets done or it doesn't have to be done. And it's also fine. But the confidence, the faith in God is really the faith that I've been through this cycle a lot of times, and every time this cycle seems to come out all right. One way or another, it just comes out all right. So why am I so nervous? So Swami's there, and the land looks threatened, but he's been through a lot of things with God. He was thrown out of SRF, and how is that ever going to work out? And look, it's working out. He needs to buy this land and earn money, and look, it's working out. You, you look back on the opportunities that God has actually opened for you, you look back on your own ability to step forward to meet those opportunities, that becomes your faith. You see, it's all, it's all embroiled together. Not, it's not passive, it's quite active. Does that make sense? What always bothered me about faith is that I, I've always assumed there's, there's this, um, not exactly an unpleasant leap that was required, but a stretch that mm-hmm. I couldn't make. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's always refreshing to, to hear that it really is based on your experience. It has to be based it has to on be. your experience. That's the only thing we've got to start with. And that's where, where there's dharma, there is victory, becomes very important. Because is it going to be dharma to just, oh, well, God's going to fix this. I think I'll just check a few videos out and just put my feet up and wait for God to fix it. That doesn't exactly feel dharmic, does it? But if we figure out, well, energy is needed. And, and sometimes that energy doesn't, you don't have a really good idea, so you just put out energy any way you can. Haridas, who was famous for lots of really um, unusual manifestations of faith, um, at one point when they were 
very low on money. Every so often they would have a garage sale to help finance the little project he was involved in and they'd be sitting there and nobody would be buying anything. And he would say, time to rearrange the merchandise. And they would just get up and move the merchandise around. Um, there was a, they had a word for it at Mountain Song. I can't remember. Fluff the product or something like that. You know, something's not selling. You just go fluff it. You don't really do anything to it. You just fluff it because you don't, have anything that you really can do, but you just put out some energy. You rearrange the merchandise and you magnetize everything again. And then, well, there it is. And oftentimes in, when I've just had way too much to do and I haven't had no time to finish it, I just do what I can do. And even if I'm freaked out and can't even work very competently, I'll just do what I can do. Because at the moment, that's the best I can do with this inner understanding and I, I, I say it to myself, it's always worked out before. Why would this be the exception? And I accept that it sometimes works out by my just completely screwing up something, you know. But nonetheless, it works out. This is my little mantra, something always happens. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very terrifically faith-building concept. You know, I point out that to myself, something always happens. Sometimes it's, some of the things that happen are better than others, but something always happens. So why would this be an exception? Just where there is dharma, there is victory. And just keep on putting one foot in front of the other. And then if you, if you consciously cultivate an awareness of that and pay attention, you, you're not like Jatendra. Oh, well, lunch was just a mistake. You know, in one minute, and Master says in this book, ah, oh, how short is human memory for divine blessing. So you, you, you cultivate within yourself the awareness it was even sweet in this, how when Master accepted Ananta's challenge to go to Brindaban, he lists out all the times that God has come through for him. And it was just an interesting fact. There he is listing out all the, all the blessings that God has showered upon him. It's a very good idea. Every time you feel nervous, just list out all the blessings. And list out how even though you are wimpy, one speaking to oneself, even though I'm wimpy and weak and disorganized and often make a mess of things, in the end I do come through. You know, I just keep putting one foot in front of another and I don't, might not do it as well as my Virgo friends would want me to, but I do it. You know, and there we are. And that's your faith. It's a whole collective. And so this one is in the same, on the same wire as all the others, so I can probably go forward. If it's a whole different something or another. I mean, if, I mean it's a very good example. There was a point where, where people wanted to buy our community. You know, it was $5 million or, well, by that time, $13, $14 million. And there was a certain, like, energy of, well, we can do this. And I didn't think we could do it. I just, it was just too big a stretch. We just weren't anywhere near that. I could feel that it was just a, wasn't a real affirmation. And I, I just really wasn't interested in the project and couldn't put any energy behind it. But then sometimes there's other projects that come and, it's just going to work, and you just know it. You're not, it's a little far, but if we all just work together, it's going to happen. And, and you, that's the art. You begin to sense it if you pay attention. Fair enough? Yeah, it's absolutely the most fun. There's a, another, this is a, just a small thing, but Mataji, um, Vanamali Devi, devotee of Krishna from Rishikesh, who's visited us here a few times, just a lovely Indian lady devotee. Um, she gave this advice when we were having a satsang with her about being so overwhelmed and having too much to do. And 
She says, she says, there's a concept that she calls, she's a devotee of Krishna, she calls it Krishna time. She says, when I have too much to do and there's not enough time to do it, she said, I turn the clock to the wall and I invoke Krishna time. And then there's a, there's a story in the Mahabharata where Krishna held the, the sun in the heavens to give Arjuna time to be able to accomplish his task and complete his vow. So sometimes you just have to say to Krishna or to whomever you're devoted, you've got to hold the sun in the heavens because I have too much work to do. And she says, always the time expands. And I have actually found that to be literally true. I just turn the clock to the wall and then just do whatever needs to be done. In here, Swami speaks of that specifically, in fact. He says, accomplishment is much, isn't so much a question of time as of focused energy. Just focused energy. He said people can take months to get something done that you can get done in minutes. And he's really not exaggerating, in minutes with focused energy. And so that's the other way that God takes care of you. It's just, in the moment, you'll know what to do, and that's that. And you'll just do it, just really quickly. You don't have to worry about it. Faith. Each time. Okay? Any other questions or thoughts? Yes, Rick? Yeah, I had a question about Bhav and practicing the presence. So, mm-hmm. is this... Bhav, what you carry 24-7? Yes, all the time. And practicing the presence is exercising. Practicing the presence of God is being aware of God's presence. And Bhav is the way, is what aspect of God you're aware of. And This takes over for the personality and the the constant... Say it again? It takes over for the personality and the constant self-reference. Yes, exactly. And one, one thinks of oneself as, you know... One is, in front of God, a child or a woman or, you know, um, Ramakrishna practiced many different bhavs. Ramakrishna was a, an avatar, but he acted out all these different sadhanas. And he wanted to know what it was like to be devoted to God as Radha was devoted to Krishna. And he went through a period of time where he became a woman. He wore woman's clothes. He would go into the woman's quarters. He was accepted by all the women as a woman. And he just was the Bhav of Radha, devoted to her lover. He just completely abandoned the fact that he was born a man and just lived in that Bhav. He became a disciple of Jesus and you know, felt what it was to, to, have, to be devoted to Christ and be completely in that Bhav. Most of the time he was devoted to the image of Kali as the Divine Mother. He became Hanuman, who was the monkey devotee of Ram. And he took his dhoti and he twisted it into a tail and he would eat nothing but fruit and he actually spent time in the trees. You know, he just completely forgot that he was a human man and he just became um, Hanuman, devoted to Ram. It was, you know, just remarkable. And he would experience each of these bobs all the way through to the end and, and see what it had to offer him. I've been so enjoying the thought, which I've mentioned several times on Sundays, of, of why we should never say, this is the way I am. You know, well, I'm just a very, um, you know, I'm a very exact person. This is just the way I am. Well, you know, I just really don't like that. That's, this is just the way I am. No, we're not anything. We're really literally nothing at all. I was, I mean, I myself have had a horoscope done and I found it helpful to hear, you know, those conditions. But 
in outwitting the stars, Master burns his horoscope into ashes and puts it in a paper bag outside his older brother's room. You know, outwitting the stars. It's like, yes, that tells you who you've been, but who you will be is between you and God now. And, you know, self-knowledge is helpful in all these different things, but let's not be hypnotized by this. Why should we be anything at all? We're just little children in relation to the infinite. So, aren't these lovely thoughts? I just was so pleased to be able to carry them here tonight. All right. That is lesson five. So now we are actually going to go on to lesson six as we speed through this course. (laughs) 